Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today's guest is Mike Oro, a retired Presbyterian pastor with 40 plus years of service in churches and communities, and the past nearly 30 of those were here in Salida, Colorado. This easily is one of my favorite conversations, and I don't think I'm just feeling recency bias to say that. In part, it's because of the humble and egoless way that Mike tackled the conversation's subject matter of faith and religion with me. While I was curious to explore the concept of faith with the former pastor, it was the flip side of that coin, doubt, that especially made this interesting to me. It turns out Mike is an incredibly self-reflective and transparent student of doubt, especially his own. In fact, at one point in this conversation, he even described himself as a poster child for doubt. So along with our exploration of faith and doubt and sharing our stories transparently, some key threads in this conversation have to do with certainty and ambiguity, the power of sharing our stories and truly listening to others, inclusion, and how to build the world we want. And something especially compelling to me is the thread of personal evolution. I love the ease with which Mike shares the unexpected in his story, and so honestly. He was a faith community leader for decades, yet you'll hear him tell that he never believed in God easily, never came by his faith easily. There's just no fear or pretense or facade in what Mike is sharing with us, no pedestal or presumed expertise, and I deeply appreciate that. Mike has evolved in his faith over the past nearly 50 years from fanatical believer who needed absolute answers to his life questions to openly fallible human who has become relatively comfortable within life's ambiguity. Speaking of myself here, as someone who ultimately rejected the religion of his childhood, I find this conversation with Mike to be refreshing and helpful, and I think you'll find it to be eye-opening no matter where you stand in your beliefs. Here we go, my conversation with Mike Orrell. Mike, welcome to Looking Upstream. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Adam. Glad to be here today. So, Mike, you are a former pastor. I don't know if former applies there. Maybe it's something you always are, you know, I'm a pastor for life. But for the moment, a former pastor, 35 years. And I just want to uh, ask where you started that process, because I know there were several years before you came here to Salida, Colorado. Yeah, um, my path to being a pastor actually started with being a business major. Okay. <laughs> so I worked in the corporate world um, for a number of years before I felt like I wanted to go back to school, be a pastor. Okay. So that was, gosh, forever, <laughs> forever ago. But uh, um yeah, it was probably in '82 when I went back to uh, um, went back to school, um, seminary. Okay, got, got my uh, master's in I think they call it masters of uh, masters of divinity, and uh, and so really, so '82 is when I started being a pastor. Um, even though I did volunteer work in the church for years before that. Where were you then? Where Where did you start as a pastor for the first? I think must have been was it seven, eight years before moving to where we are now in Salida? Um, I started, would have been, I guess, Alabama, actually. Uh, my wife and I were youth directors at a small church in Alabama. Um, that would have been in the uh, very early 80s, late 70s. 
Then I became. Then I went to school up in Kentucky. Uh, that's where I got my uh, um, master's in uh, divinity. Um, so and then so I had a church in Louisville, Kentucky. Then I moved to Pennsylvania and uh, uh, did some youth work in Pennsylvania. And then in 1990 is when I moved to Salida and started here. Okay, so that's covering some geography there. Where <laughs> where did you grow up? Where are you from? And I grew up in Florida. Okay. <laughs> even though even though I just actually found out today, actually ten minutes before I got here, um, so I'm retiring. You know, at the end of the year here, and um, so we taught we called the Social Security office, and they had me being born in Huntsville, Alabama. And I said I was I've not been born in Huntsville, Alabama. I was born in Madison, Indiana. They go, huh? We need to take care of that. <laughs> I said, yes, we do. So anyway, um, I have moved around a lot, uh, but I grew up. I call I I called my childhood home, Florida, and and that's where my family mostly still lives. Are you sure they don't have some secrets? Maybe you were born in Huntsville. Maybe you know there's something going on there that you know my family, <laughs> my family there could easily something be going on. Okay, at well, any at any given moment. That, that sounds like a fantastic doorway to a story, but uh, which actually I wanted to ask you about your upbringing anyway, because I am curious what led you to this, what ultimately has become a life of faith, decades of, of service through uh, church. And I'm curious about the impact your family had on that. Was it a matter of growing up in a family that raised you with certain beliefs, took you to church every week or however often, um, you know, what was the influence or maybe even the nudge in the direction of seminary from them? Um, well, so I come from a family of six kids. So four of us were born within five years. So my poor mom, Okay. um, two, two of my siblings came along much later, but, um, so, yeah, we were a family that did go to church every week, um, and it was important to my family. I, I, I always knew it was important to my family. Um, it, I, I can't say that it was that important to me. Um, it, wasn't an, it wasn't like I was anti-church or anything like that. It just was kind of something my family did, and so I went along because I had to. Um, and and I can't say that I had any real leanings toward that at all. And though my family went to church every week, um, there wasn't – I wouldn't call my family a religious family. We just went to church. It's kind of what families back in the 50s and 60s in my, in my neck of the woods did. Um, and so they never – they were completely surprised when I had said – when I told them that I was going to go to seminary. I mean, it was, really? it was a total – a total shock, um, uh, and not necessarily for my dad. He was like pleased. My mom was like, "Really, you want to do that?" <laughs> my brother thought I was a dork, and my sisters not sure what they thought about all that. Um, but it was not in my plans by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, I, I think what began to change. Um, was a, a chance meeting of my from my sister to what is now her husband, um, and he and he came from a very religious family, and um, this was in the this was in the middle of the uh, 
the Jesus movement of the late 60s, um, early 70s, the charismatic renewal. So the speaking in tongues and uh, the spirit-led services and the enthusiastic, you know, emotional-type services, which was a far cry from my Presbyterian upbringing. Um, and so she had met this gentleman, and they became extremely influential in my life. Um, and I remember, uh, I, I, you know, in a previous conversation you and I had, you know, you'd asked me about um, – sort of defining moments and really a defining moment. And I, I call it really my, my biggest defining moment in my life is when my sister asked me, hey, would you go with me to my boyfriend's house? Uh, his parents have a little house church that they, they run. And I, and I didn't really want to go. My mother looked at me and she said, you should go. It might do you some good. <laughs> <laughs> what, what had she seen going on in your life that she? Uh, I, I was uh, I was I was uh, a, t- a handful as a kid. I was a, <laughs> I was a handful as a kid. I was a very angry. Don't ask me why that because I don't know the answer to that. But I was a very angry kid, um, getting into trouble quite a lot. And so she said, "You should just go. It might do you some good." <laughs> so I went. How, how old were you then? I was sixteen. Was your sister an older sister? She was two years older than me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I went to this little house church prayer meeting kind of thing, and for whatever reason, something grabbed a hold of me, and, um, you know, faith became, um, I guess you would say, just it became sort of the central driver of my life it was was faith in God, and... Um, and I can truly say that that really has shaped that night. I mean, it was, a, it was a moment from one moment to the next, from one day to the next. Not everybody has those experiences, and it's not necessary. But for me, it was. It was just from one moment to the next. Um, church wasn't that important to it became very important. Faith wasn't that important to it became very important. Yeah. It, it sounds like there were several years between that defining moment and when you actually decided to go from yeah. a corporate life to seminary and kind of change and, and commit further to that path, yeah. um, was it a matter of, okay, it's important to me, I'm 16, I assume you finished high school, sounds like you went and studied business, went on into young adult life, that several years, had you just assumed, okay, it's important to me, but this yeah. is my path. What changed it then from that path to say, you know what, I want to take another big step here to right. seminary? Yeah, and that will probably be my second biggest defining moment. Um, All right, we're on it. You were, we are. We are on it. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, as a teenager, I, I think like a lot of teenagers who have what some would call conversion experiences, um, I was, you know, pretty f- passionate and fanatical. Fanat- I'm, and I'm using that word because I, I really was, you know, stopping people on the beach you know, asking them if, if they want to be saved, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, so I was I was very passionate. It was part of my life. Um, but then, you know, after I graduated from high school, went to college. Um, um, at the suggestion of my dad, I, uh, he said, "Well, why don't you major in business?" Because I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do. He said, "Why don't you just major in business? It's kind of a good all around thing to major in." So I said, "Okay." So I majored in business. Um, focused on marketing was sort of my my thing. Um, uh, got out of school, took my first job, 
um, uh, in Chicago um, and then in Birmingham, Alabama, um, which is probably where the Huntsville thing comes in eventually somewhere along the way. <laughs> but I did live in Alabama for a while. Um, and um, it was while we, uh, my wife and I were in Alabama that we started working at a little church as youth directors. And I realized I really like doing this. You know, I like working with kids in this setting. Um, I did not like the corporate world at all. It just was not for me. Um, and so one day I said to her, I said, you know, I said, my wife's name is Bev. I said, Bev, I, I really think I want to go to seminary. I want to go back to school. And um, at that time, my only real thought was um, to get my master's in Christian education and work with youth. Um, and so, so we started that process in the early 80s and um, went to seminary. And while I was in seminary, um, I said, you know, it's only another year to go to get my master's of divinity. And so I could be a pastor, um, a full-fledged pastor. And so that's what I did. So there was a, was a period of, of, of years in there when I was working in the business world and I just wasn't happy doing it. It just wasn't. It just wasn't for me. I, I think I remember telling my wife. I said I really want to do something that has real eternal consequences. You know, just something really, really important that had lasting, would have lasting impact in, in somebody's life. And and working in the marketing field that I was working in was not that. I've not heard that phrase before, and that sounds pretty powerful to me. Eternal consequences. Mm-hmm. Was that something from? What was that terminology, that phrase from somewhere in your religious experience or just your expression of it? Just my expression. And, and, and that's even changed. How I understand that has changed. As a, as a young 20-year-old, 21-year-old, 22-year-old, um, and, being a very, and coming out of a very conservative uh, evangelical kind of setting that, uh, that I became a Christian in, um, my idea of that was heaven and hell. I mean, that was my focus of my religious faith was um, very standard evangelical stuff, you know, get people saved so they get into heaven, get out of hell. I do not think that way any longer at all. Um, and so what I mean now by that eternal consequences um, it just has lasting impact on somebody's life. Um, you know, ever since starting church, and then even after retiring from uh, from church and working now with public health, um, I've really been drawn in, um, towards working with people in ways that are deeply impactful. At least I hope they are deeply impactful to them as they are to me. Um, and so, uh, I've just always been drawn to. Uh, um, well, John. John and I were talking to, just before the show. I, I've been drawn to working with those who are homeless, um, those who are um, addicted, um, those just who are struggling in lots of different ways. Um, as, and, and that's what I mean now by working in something that has eternal, you know, consequences or lasting impact. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't even think I'd use that term anymore. Eternal consequences. I just mean that that has just really lasting impact. For, for somebody. Right, right. You know, it, if I'm doing all the math here right, getting in the ballpark, I'm thinking that when you became a pastor, again, I said at the top that you were a pastor for around 35 years. 
Uh, and you actually retired from that role, that chapter in your life several years ago um, and, and have engaged in other community work, which you mentioned you're about to retire from. My math on this puts you in your mid-20s when you became a pastor. Does that sound right? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I would have been probably 25. Okay. Yeah. So now that I am middle-aged myself and have at least lived enough life to understand our evolution to some extent as individuals, right, as we learn, as we accrue some sort of hopefully wisdom, um, given the fact I'm a parent and I hope I'm sharing worthwhile things with my sons, right, I'm thinking when I was 25, I was very far from being a pastor mm -hmm. uh, in my behaviors and, you know, activities. What wisdom would I have had to share with someone who is a member in the church that is maybe 40, 50, 60, 70, coming to me with real life? You're talking about lasting things. They've lived things that at 25 we haven't. You were 25 starting off as a pastor. How did that process go? What did you, how did you handle those moments? I, I would have to assume that was tons of learning and humility involved. I, I, I'm just laughing because um, I think I was a lot smarter than I really was when I was 25. I was, I was, I was just a dumb. I was really dumb. I think the thing that <laughs> I think the thing that really helped me out a lot is that I worked with kids mostly. My first. Five years as a okay. as a pastor. That was a good path, possibly. That, well, and that's that's kind of standard. I mean, it's okay. not it's not an unusual path. You start working as a youth minister, you know, um, then you work. So I work as a volunteer youth minister. My wife and I. Then I work as an intern youth minister. Then I work as a paid youth minister, <laughs> and then you move on up to move on up to finally become a senior pastor, like I became. But so I didn't have a whole lot of wisdom to offer somebody <laughs> who was 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. Um, I, I have to just say how grateful I am because um, I learned hope, whatever wisdom I have, I've learned from the encounters with both youth and older folks. Um, um, gosh, you know, here's a great example. I think in my very first church, I'm, so I'm in my 20s, um, I'm in a soft, I'm, on, I'm on the church softball team, you know, and we're um, just kind of having a lot of fun as you know um, playing softball with other churches in the in the region. When one of our teammates, um, probably only three or four years older than I am, um, gets cancer, and um, with him on his deathbed, and um, and I'm apologizing to him because I had been avoiding him because I was so hurt. Um, by his death, I didn't. I didn't even know how to handle it. It was my very first death, you know, as a pastor, you know, and and he was in a coma. At least we thought he was. And I'm sharing with him. I'm just telling him I love him, that he's been a good friend. Um, but and I'm apologizing that I had been sort of avoiding because I was just scared, um, and seeing a tear come out of his eye. Um, thinking that he was in a coma um, and learning from that that in that kind of situation I always tell people now talk to them 
you just you don't know if they can hear you or not, but it's very possible that they can. And so say what you need to say. So those are the kind of lessons that I learned from from young people or people my age. And I've I I can't. I mean, I'm so grateful to that because any wisdom I do have is not. <laughs> it does not come naturally to me, um, as my dad would say. Um, his favorite saying of me was, "Your, you know, quit acting like a horse's ass." <laughs> that was more typical. That was more typical of my of my young my young years. I think it's a a fantastic reminder that what we are talking about with people who choose this life is you also are human. You mm-hmm. also are fallible. You also are learning all along the way that it doesn't, even when you feel there's a defining moment that you might, someone might refer to as a calling this clarity of your path. That does not mean lightning strikes and you are imbued with this sort of mm-hmm. immense wisdom that, um, that, that doesn't have to be earned. You're, you're still going through life and learning as we go here. And so I think that's part of the fascinating thing for me in your experience, because there would be development of you as a pastor that at the same time there is of you as a human, like all of us. Yeah. And I, I think that people want clarity, right? They want answers. When they go to their pastor, they're wanting answers and what you're sharing uh, I think that's amazing. That first story right there is showing your fallibility, your willingness to say, wow, I wasn't perfect and I learned. And I think it sounds like that man's tear um, was his capacity to express some love and forgiveness back for what you were saying. Yeah, I, I think I think if I had any strength as a pastor, um it was that I was very transparent about my own um, fallibility, my own flaws, my own doubts. Um, I think if you remember what I told you when we met last week. You know, I said I think one of the first things I said is um, I always hated that people looked at me as an expert. <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. I don't even know what that means when you start talking about spirituality. What, what's an expert? You know, I get I get a, I get a little frightened when I meet somebody who thinks they're an expert, um, especially in the realm of of spiritual matters. I, I'm I'm not by any stretch. And the thing that people most I think the thing that people most appreciated about me, at least this is what they said, was that I was very authentic um, about my doubts. And again, I. I speak in stories. I think you know that. And so I'm thinking back to when I went on a sabbatical. I was, um, uh, this is 2012, uh, so I was here in Salida. Um, and I was pretty close to a nervous breakdown. And uh, both my wife and our elders at the church said, you know, you, re- you just really need to take some time, you know. And so they graciously gave me, you know, three months, you know, just to take off. And... Um, and just do whatever I needed to do. So, you know, I, I went, I think I'd think, <clears throat> I think I went 7,000 miles that summer. Wow. Um, you know, what do they say? Trying to find myself kind of, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But anyway, when I got back to the church, um, and then I, my first Sunday in the pulpit back from my sabbatical, I, I just shared with them, this, this is what was going on in my life, you know, 
Um, I was angry. I was, I had just, right before I left, I had just buried a young person again. I said I was grieving from all the deaths that I had um, been a part of. Um, my wife and I were struggling, you know, with our own relationship. Um, I was burned out. I, I started talking in those terms in, in my first Sunday back. And what was so amazing to me was, I can't even count the number of people who came up afterwards and said, oh my gosh, I felt the same way. I have felt that way before. Um, I have felt suicidal at times. I have felt um, depressed and anxious. Um, and that, that was another bit of wisdom I learned, you know, because um, um, to realize, oh, yeah, we're just we're all on this journey. And it's kind of pretty tough sometimes to, to be on this journey. Um, and it gave them freedom. I, I, I had lots of counseling sessions in the, in the weeks and months after that where people now felt even more comfortable saying, you know, can I say this to you? Well, I said, yeah, absolutely. You can. You know you can say that to me. Um, you know, you have no judgment here on my part because you've heard, you've heard my, you've heard my story. I, that to me is the value of sharing in general. My path or or tool for this is the podcast. Right. This is why I think sharing vulnerably and openly, trusting how it's going to be received, is a point of connection rather than just putting ourselves out there raw for some sort of criticism or, you know, those things that of course are natural that people fear are nervous about. Yeah. I gravitate toward people who are transparent and who are willing to share themselves. And a lot of times that really includes or even focuses on flaws mm-hmm. um, because there's also the sense of redemption or resilience or whatever, you know, might be relevant to that story and how there's also light shining oh. at the end of that. Your word redemption is really a good word, um, um, and I'm not talking any kind of high, high and mighty type of redemption. I'm just talking human redemption. Um, I have never. Um, I love stories. You know that we tell stories. I'm part of the Rio Chafee storytelling thing. I, stories are the most powerful thing I think there are, and I have never ever in my life um, had a bad experience. When somebody, when either I or somebody else shares their story with each other, when we share our story with each other, it's always been a moment of redemption. It's always been a moment of, um, I don't know what to, I don't know what it is. It's just a moment of humanness, really. Um, and as I've gotten older and know that I have, I shall hopefully still have a lot of years left, but I have less years in front of me now than I do behind me. And I don't want to waste it. And I feel like a lot of our conversations, you know, can be wasted if we just stay floating around on the surface all the time. But if we can allow ourselves to tell each other's story um, and hear and hear each other's stories, um, I have always found that to be the most redemptive, powerful, transformative moments of my life, and hopefully of the person's life that you know we're sharing with. Um, I feel like our stories and, and how we share them like that, it cultivates a sense of trust and, and, and rapport, maybe even empathy and, and compassion. Th- those are these threads that run through so much of what we do here on the podcast because we're sharing with each other. Right. And that's also right. why I share so much from my seat 
rather than treat this like an interview, I, I never or close to never use the word interview in talking about this podcast. I talk about conversations. And the reason being that I want it to be something that we both are sharing in, and it's not just one person on the hot seat. Mm-hmm. And that when you and I can create a connection and a sense of trust and understanding with each other, that hopefully what that does is help listeners to feel that as well. But it also models perhaps how to listen with empathy without that judgment. Like yeah. you you described that when members of the church would come to you for counseling, obviously there's already a trust established there, but that sounds like in a way a breakthrough moment that that sermon you gave at the when you returned from sabbatical, I think it sounds like they saw you in a little bit deeper, brighter light. Yeah, I mean, people tend to put ministers on pedestals sometimes. Sure. And even though I really tried to avoid people doing that with me, <laughs> um, uh, I, and I made enough mistakes that probably most wouldn't put me on the pedestal, <laughs> pedestal but um, some did. Some would try to put me on a pedestal. And um, and so when they would come for counseling, they would kind of expect me to sort of know the answers to their problems. Um, yeah. It goes back to that clarity, that sense of they want clear answers. They treat yeah. you as the expert. Yeah. Tell and, me what to do. And they, and they, I think they probably quickly realized that I didn't have all the answers. But what actually helped them find the answers for themselves is just the process of communicating back and forth. They would tell me whatever it was, was going on in their life. And, um, and when it was appropriate, I might share a little of, of myself um, that had some connections with whatever it is that they were going through. Um, and somewhere in the midst of that, you know, I really, I was taught well in seminary, don't give advice, you know, because advice is cheap and advice is dangerous. Because um, even when somebody comes in and talks to me, I'm only hearing just a little bit of the story. I'm not hearing everything. And so to give advice is pretty it's pretty presumptuous to say that I have, I have what you need. Um, right. But in the midst of the conversation um, and sharing, again, our stories, and you and I did this last week. We started just the, when we were having coffee together. It was like, oh, this is, this is kind of fun. We're having, we're having good conversation here about um, things that are important to us. And in the midst of that, I know I did anyway. I started pondering then other things. You know, I, I drove home from that conversation pondering other things in my mind that were brought up. And I hope that may have happened with you as well. And and in the midst of that, I think that's where people find their, their own answers. Um, you know, Mike, what that brings to mind for me is something that I've learned from a spiritual teacher that, that I have had in recent years. And that is to not fade, fight, or fix you know, we have a tendency when people come to us, maybe that's a best friend, a partner, spouse, whoever it is. And so often, and, and it might be out of our own discomfort with having to sit and just listen patiently. But we, I, I think, have a tendency to want to either fade, fight, or fix. We want to either reduce or minimize what they're saying. We want to go ahead and give them the solution as, as if we know, um, you know, like you suggested there, to, to give advice suggest you have the answers without even knowing the whole picture. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know your thoughts on that, if you're familiar with that phrasing. I actually, I hadn't heard it, but I love it. I really do. I love it. And and um, and it's exactly, I think, uh, 
um, the kind of temptation that I as a pastor and I think many anybody really when you're talking with somebody who's going through something we face that do we minimize it saying oh you know it, it will get better you know well it may not maybe it won't get better you know or um, or fight like I disagree with you well I'm you know it's not appropriate to disagree this is their story right right and then the other is to fix and that's really for me you know um, and that's still today you know try to you know temptation to fix the problem um, and oftentimes people really don't need that I, I, I do think people have within themselves um, the ability to find their answers um, if they can find the support um, that they need and, you know and, and you know how people always say well what good does talking about it make well talking about it I think does a lot of good um, because in the midst of somebody sharing their story they're creating some clarity in their mind um, and so, yeah, I love this. I love that. I'm going to try to remember it. Fade, fight, or fix. Um, and to avoid those. And, and just the idea of, just the idea of, well, let, me, let me listen. I'm a safe, I guess that's really what I, I want to, I, I wanted to be always throughout past, my pastoral career, and I want to be now in whatever the remainder of my life will be. I want to be a safe place for people to be able to come to and share their stories um, and to know that uh, they will be appreciated for their story, um, celebrated for their story, um, accepted for their story. Um, believed. Believed. They just want to be heard yeah. and, and seen, yeah. right? And, and I think that validates their existence in, in that story without saying anything is simply that you're willing to sit and listen because we all, when we're going through these things, maybe we feel so aggrieved, so angry, or maybe confused and uncertain. Is this, you know, are my thoughts, is, is this true? Is this clear? You know, mm -hmm. by simply listening, we validate that person's existence and their story. Yeah. I, I think it's what we're lacking actually as, as community, as society, when it comes to um, many of the major differences we have across our society is that we're not willing to listen with empathy and compassion and, and just say, I believe you. Instead, we immediately dismiss and say, well, you must have done something wrong. That's why the police officer chased. That's why they shot. That's why they, whatever the incident, you must have done something wrong. That's why your boss yelled at you. Yep. We're not there to support them. And sometimes that support only looks like I'm actively listening and letting you get it off your chest and be heard. You know, when before, um, before public health, uh, Chaffee County Public Health um, opened their mobile clinic back in May, um, we did a series of interviews around town, both here in Salida and up in Buena Vista, just asking kind of just asking people, well, would you use such a clinic? What would you need? Um, and of course, I, I did a lot of interviews with those who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and you know what the biggest answer that they had was that they needed? What? They said nobody ever listens to us at all. We're invisible. And we just want somebody to pay attention to our lives. I think it's amazing that they said that. Oh, given because when you think of a mobile health clinic, I would think, oh, I, I I have a cold. I need someone to check me out, give me some Tylenol, whatever. Right? You think of those, what we might look at as more physical. Mm -hmm. That's that, more emotional. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, yeah. I think the thing people first hear when they hear uh, clinic is medical. Right. And um, we do some medical 
things. But we spend more time. Matter of fact, we just had the clinic yesterday, um, and we talked about this among our staff. And I said, man, I've just been spending a lot of time today just listening to the stories. And, the, and, and, and these folks, their, their lives are, are a little chaotic at the moment. Um, but just the, the idea that somebody listened to them, they'll tell you right up front that this, how grateful they are that somebody paid attention to them finally. You know, and that's all, that's all they want. I got a chance to hear as much when uh, we invited the two public health nurses who operate that clinic, mm-hmm. uh, Tanya Waite and Abigail Smedley. They were guests previously right. on this podcast, and, and we had such a great conversation. They loved and it. They shared as much that people really just, they need to feel, I think, heard and cared for. Uh, Mike, I want to take us in another direction here, sort of. You had mentioned doubts earlier, and that's a really key subject area that when I think of faith, I think of doubt. To me, they sort of function as you know, opposite sides in a sense of a, the same coin, but they, they just go hand in hand. And so I'm curious about your thoughts on doubt in faith. Um, maybe yours, since you've been so willing to share in, in transparently about yourself, but also just in general as it relates to faith. I heard a little saying once, um, it's a little kind of a cutesy saying, but it has a lot of meaning behind it for me, that doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I have never been a person where faith came easily. Never. Um, I've never believed in God easily. Never believed in Jesus as the Son of God easily. Um, uh, never believed in um, an afterlife easily. Um, Never believed that everything will work out okay, easily. Um, I am a poster child for doubt. Um, and when I earlier had said people had uh, expressed when I retired, uh, one of the things they appreciated me about me most was my transparency. Well, a lot of that transparency had to do about doubt. Um, and, um, and that's not changed. To this very moment, right here sitting in this chair, um, I have lots of doubts um, about, uh, about faith. And there, was, there would have been a time when I would have thought that made me um, a bad person, you know. Um, but I now find it. And so, and so I was the kind of person that had to live with certainty. Um, I just really, I had to have, well, I had to have, I had to have answers to everything. Um, uh, early on, and so that's probably one of my biggest transformations over the years, is I can live with amb- ambiguity now, and it's okay. Um, you know, this is not this won't be popular among some of my more conservative religious friends, but um, um, I think that religion, um, as it's currently practiced in our society, and that and that includes the Christian faith, that includes. Um, Jewish, Muslim, um, whatever. I think a lot of that's all human construct. The ways we put words to what's something going on inside of us. And so, I'm really okay with doubting the human construct. Um, 
and that's pretty freeing for me. Um, I don't have to live within, I don't have to live within my own Presbyterian denominational doctrines. Um, I don't have to live within anybody else's doctrine. Um, I am free to kind of pursue my own spirituality. Um, I'm still very much part of the church, you know, it's part of my life, will always be part of my life. It's important. Um, but it's also important to me um, to be able to express my doubts and say, you know, I'm not sure I buy that preacher. <laughs> I'm not preaching anymore. And I, so, and, I, and, and I can say that, you know, I'm not sure I buy that. And um, if I w- would ever preach again, I'd hope somebody would say, I'm not sure I buy that, Mike. And I say, okay, that's cool. That's all right with me. Tell me, tell me, it is, tell me what's going on. Tell me what, what you're thinking. So I think doubts is really important. Um, and I think the moment we become really certain, whether it be matters of faith or politics or whatever, when we become really certain, maybe that's when we begin, you, you kind of hinted at it earlier, that's when we begin to have our conflicts with each other because we've stopped listening. Not only because we've stopped listening, but we've also become certain in our not listening. Um, and so I, I celebrate people's doubts because that's, that's where we're, I think that's our growing edge. That's what we'll learn. There are so many things you just said there that could lead us down different paths and things that spark energy and excitement in and resonance for me. The idea of absolute, of, of knowing, quote, knowing, especially as I think we're seeing, you mentioned that can be in, in reference to faith, it can be uh, to politics. We are seeing that now more than I remember at any point, at least in my lifetime, throughout the country and the way we're all sort of acting in what I have felt like anyway is a very anxiety-inducing chaos. And in large part, I think it's because there is blind, quote, knowing. It's based, I think, and rooted in a lot of um, absence of fact. It's rooted in some ignorance. It's just knowing not questioning, not having doubts. I don't know if there's anything more human for us to have than uncertainty. And an awful lot in the world sure makes it seem like we should know. We should be certain. Just like you were describing, you thought you were comfortable only in certainty, and you felt like you weren't allowed the room for doubts in your faith I assume you're talking about it in a much younger time and that somewhere along the way there was evolution to what you just described so wonderfully as being a poster child for doubts. And I'm curious, what what was that transition for you? What maybe, because I don't imagine there was just one point, but if there was, I mean, how, how would you describe that movement from the need for certainty and you were, oh, you said, bad person. I thought I was a bad person if I had doubts. How did you get to where you are now as someone who embraces doubt and understands the freedom of it? Well, you're right. I mean, there, there, I, there's no one moment um, where that transformation began. It, it's, it's many moments. And I think a lot of those, gosh, a lot, um, a lot of those moments would come out of tragedy, let's say. So as a pastor, as you imagine, I, I, I interacted a lot with people who were getting divorced or people who had had sudden deaths in their families. Um, sometimes those deaths were natural. Um, 
sometimes they're absolutely, you know, just horror, horrible, tragic deaths. Um, I think interacting with people uh, in those situations ha- had a lot to do with me letting go of my need for certainty. Um, because when you're interacting with folks in those kind of situations, I mean, everything is, is up for grabs um, for them in that. Everything is everything has been dislocated for them. And so I, I was brought into a lot of dislocations. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, teaching, um, I love teaching. But in the midst of teaching um, and the interaction of student and teacher where they thought I was the teacher and I had, again, I had that I would have the answers. And I would say, well, I'm not sure I do have the answers. Let's talk about, you know, where are you coming from? I think those kind of interactions begin to do begin to change um, my need for certainty. I, I, I read a lot. Um, in my younger years, I was involved, as I said earlier, in the kind of the charismatic uh, Jesus movement. There was a lot of emotion in that, um, and I left that I left that movement after a few years because I needed a little more scholarly approach to faith. And so I just did a lot of reading, um, just all kinds of reading from all kinds of people. And I go, oh, wow, that's a really different, that's a really different viewpoint than I had had. Um, seminary course was, I mean, if, if, if there was a moment maybe, or a period of short moments, seminary was, would have been eye-opening. Because I, I mean, it was a very liberal, what would have been called by some a very liberal seminary. Um, and so the professors, of course, highly educated, started saying, well, you know, here's a way to look at this. Here's a way to look at this. This passage really kind of comes out of this situation, might mean this. That was blow my, that blew my mind. Um, so that probably was the start of it. But it's really mostly just the interaction of pastoral interactions with people where I realized um, that, I don't know, um, certainty... I, I, don't, I wonder, I don't know if this is true or not, but I wonder if the need for certainty, if in my own case, and maybe in the cases of others, is just this fear. Um, I think we're talking about comfort. The, 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 what we perceive as a need for comfort or the discomfort if we are not in control. Well, I think all those fit together. The need to control, uh, and if you're not in control, and, if you're, and so if, if, you're, if you're living with ambiguity, you're not in control, right, I guess? You know, so, yeah, I think my need for certainty probably, <laughs> I had a nun tell me earlier, she, um, many, many years ago, she said, Mike, you have a, a really strong need to be perfect, to be right, and to be controlled, don't you? <laughs> and rather than be offended, I was going, yeah, you are absolutely right. <laughs> you are right. I do have that need. So that's another transformative moment. Um, but I think we do want to control things, and I think we're afraid, and boy, I don't know. My take on the world today is that we have a lot of fear. It just seems like there's just a lot of fear. It's being stoked. And the, and the fear is being stoked in a lot of different ways. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Um, um, well, I, I kind of do. I feel I do kind of know. I, it's, it's learning how to love one another in the midst of our differences, um, the midst of our uncertainties. But, yeah, um, I'm, not, I'm kind of rambling now, but um, I think for me, my need for certainty was a need to be in control and, and just a fearfulness that I had in me. Um, I, I think that's incredibly common. It's common 
Not not even just as it relates to faith, of course, right? We we all whatever the human thing is, this is something that we all face at some point if we even are fortunate enough to recognize it and recognize it's something that we can work on or do make any sort of change about. Mm-hmm. I I want to well, let, let me give some context here, by the way, and maybe for listeners besides for you, Mike, my experience and, and just where I stand mm-hmm. in re- right. with regard to faith, my experience was from probably the first Sunday after I was born until I was 18, I was forced to go to church one to two times a week. I revolted, which in my house meant nothing until I was 18 and able to actually take action against being forced. So my my opinion, I felt, was unheard. My questions in church were unwanted. Um, I questioned the very core of all of it in Sunday school classes and so on, and I would be met with sort of these awkward smiles and blank stares and no answers. There was no openness, too. So I appreciate the things that you're sharing, that transparency and those things in such a way um, I'm a good nearly 30 years removed from when I stopped going to church myself. That said, I don't consider myself to be someone who lacks spirituality, who lacks a sense of a bigger picture, who lacks good, right? I'm, I'm trying to raise my sons with the same sorts of good, like compassion, love, empathy, patience, kindness, how we handle ourselves with others in the same way that to me, if you removed some of these um, boundaries that are put around certain faiths or denominations, if you just saw those descriptions on paper, we're the same. Mm -hmm. I say all that, I guess, just to, it, it occurred to me that maybe that context is of use in our conversation for you and I, as well as for listeners. And I now want to ask about the other side of that coin. We've talked deeply enough about doubt, but on faith then, I'm curious what it is that you have come to um, understand of faith, maybe in general and for yourself, what it means. How do you define it? Um, Someone once told me um, when we were talking about faith, um, he said, most people think faith is believing unbelievable things. And, and, you know, like a set of doctrines or a set of theological, you know, assertions. I don't think so. For me, I think faith is more of this relationship. And so we get, we're going to come back, we're going to come back to stories. But I think faith is, is relationship. Um, and relationships are give and take, right, I guess. Um, so relationships have ups and downs. Faiths have up, faith has ups and downs. Relationships has some certainties and some ambiguities. Faith has that as well. Um, you know, so for me, um, that's really kind of what it comes down to is um, the relationship that you and I would have with each other when we're together. Um, talking about whatever it is we're talking about or going through whatever it is we're going through. Um, and, I, you know, I say that about you in this moment or, you know, my wife, you know, when we're going through um, our days and our weeks, you know, my, with my kids or grandkids. Uh, so faith is more of a sense of, for me, I guess, but loyalty to, uh, or belief that this relationship 
is important enough to hang in there with. Okay. Uh, does that make any sense at all? Um, and in the midst of that, you know, there's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be messy. So, but we, but we've, we, it's worth keeping, right? It's worth keeping the relationship. Um, it's worth keeping um, a, a faith group together. It's worth keeping the country together. It's worth keeping <laughs> a family together. It's messy, but it's worth it. Um, and maybe that's where faith kind of I, lies. I think we're talking about an abstract thing. And if we go back to what we were saying about people's perception that they need certainty, what we're talking about here with faith is a very abstract, difficult to grasp concept. And that might also explain then that when there is a, a feeling that one needs certainty, they gravitate to whoever will provide that. You were advised, don't give advice. Mm-hmm. Be there to listen and allow people to sit in that conversation and come to their own answers. Someone who maybe goes to a more conservative approach, right? They might be looking for a pastor who says, X, Y, Z, these are your answers. Right. And then we remove what I would say is truly faith. Right. You know, my daughter, when she was um, first graduated from college, took a job as a teacher down in Cortez, she called me. She said, Daddy, I want to go to a church somewhere. Um, but, you know, um, how, do I know wh- how do I know which one to go to? I said, well, choose one that's healthy. And she said, well, what, I, what does that look like? I said, it's the, one that makes, it's the one that allows you to ask your questions and be where, you, be where you are, be who you are, be where you are without fear of judgment. Um, or fear of more of your questions. Or fear of, right? yeah. You know, and you're, you're, the way you described it, you know, um, I've, been, I've heard that story a lot from people who once upon a time went to a religious kind of setting. It doesn't have to be necessarily Christian. It could be whatever. It could be Jewish. It could be um, Muslim or whatever. But they were in their setting, <laughs> and they asked their questions, and they got this blank look. Or, or worse, you know, kind of a slap on the hand, like, don't you ever ask those kind of questions. So maybe faith is, maybe faith is trust. Maybe faith is trust in this person in front of me and the relationships. So my wife and I, our relationships sometimes messy. But I do trust that um, the relationship is important. So I'm going st- to, I'm going to stay there and stick with it, even in the messy times, even when it, even when we may not feel certain about each other or about the world or about our lives or whatever. Um, the one thing that's solid is we trust. We trust. I, I hope that this, what I'm about to say, Mike, sounds like um, a positive as opposed to calling out your doubts or something mm-hmm. here. You have a lifetime now of this faith. In all its evolution, the doubts and transparency and all these things of, of that process. But as I ask you about faith, a man who was a pastor for 35 years and had a number of other years in the church working with youth, I ask you a simple and incredibly complicated question, what is faith? And you're trying to put it into words. And I say that yeah. with positivity and appreciation because what that shows me is we are all 
it's all an evolution and it doesn't stop. There's not a definition that we eventually arrive at like a destination. Does that sound fair? It's, it's very fair. And, and, and I think it's, it's, I think for me, that's the healthiest way to approach life is, um, if, again, is, is to not to, not to, not to put this boundary around me and say, okay, this is what I believe now and forever I'm in. I, that's just not reality to me. You know, 20 years from now, if I got another 20 years in me, um, I'm going to think differently about, you know, we would have the same conversation 20 years from now, and probably going to be a very different kind of conversation. Um, and I think that's okay. I really do think that's okay. But I think that's a very hard place for a lot of people to be in today's world. Yeah. Because people do want somebody. Uh, I, had a, I had a person tell me just the other, other day. Um, this person said, you know, um, I went to a church the other day and the pastor was talking about love and that we need to be compassionate toward people and to be loving. And it just sounded so wishy-washy. I just wanted him to tell me what it is I'm supposed to believe and that's all I wanted to know. And I go, wow. I said, you know, and, and that's not uncommon. It's right. really not an uncommon thing. It's just not me anymore. Um, it's, and uh, I find it really kind of unhealthy. Um, but, <laughs> but again, I don't want to be judging of somebody in that space. If that's what somebody needs at this, mo- this moment in their life, okay. They're where they are in their evolution. They're, they're, they're where they are in their evolution. And I love the word evolution. I really do. Um, I love the word transformation. Um, Mike, I want to ask about, um, you know, I, I explained for context where I was coming from in my experience with religion. It was from what I would describe as a fairly strict household. Again, I, I would say, I don't like church. I don't want to go. Even as a teenager, well, you're going. Um, and part of what over the years, because I've spent decades trying to untangle in my mind and heart what it is I believe, where does that come from, what it is it that rubbed me wrong about that experience. And one of the key ones, especially now, in this time and place, has to do with inclusion versus exclusion. And I feel like what we see from my perspective in an awful lot of the you know, more conservative um, forms of, I'll say Christianity, it really is all religion, but I'll say Christianity simply because that's the largest it's not even uh, one aspect uh, when you count all the denominations and perspectives within it, but it's the largest piece of religion, organized religion in our country and what I grew up around. So my experience with that and, and perception of that is, yes, we're about love, love thy neighbor, unless your neighbor is gay or unless they're this or they're that. Because as we've said, the preacher, the Bible, the certainty the rules you were given said, nope, love thy neighbor unless. I, I don't know how to square that. And yeah. I think that you have expressed here um, a broader view and one that is more accepting and loving and inclusive. And I, I just want to hear your thoughts and perspective on my rambling thoughts and question. So so if, I, if I'm hearing you the right way, when you were growing up in church, one of the things that rubbed you the wrong way was the church was sort of a insular kind of place, closed door to certain kinds of folks, certain kinds of 
It was enough then, but what I'm also including, I guess, in this perspective is decades as an adult and my perception of so much of what we see. And again, a lot of that comes through in how um, how organized religion is also carried into our politics. And so then it's carried into media and what the divisions among all of us, rather than connections, right? I think inclusion means that ultimately we come together in those relationships you described as as a description of faith, it, it's breaking all of those connections down. It's breaking those relationships. It's saying you count, but you don't. And I, I just can't get with an, an organized belief system that wants to divide us up that way. Well, and I'm really happy you can't square that. Okay. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm happy that you can't because with the way I understand um, the Christian faith and the way I understand the heart of um, Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and all the other world religions that exist, the heart of um, is all about inclusion, um, diversity, equity. I mean, those are phrases that we hear a lot nowadays. And so, when you when your gut clenches that when there's not that kind of thing going on in religious settings, it's right to clench. Um, I think because um, for me, and 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 I can say that because I was, I would have been forty years ago, the kind of person who was exclude exclusion excluding of others, um, depending on you know maybe the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, I know I know what you're saying because I've been there, said that, done that. Okay. But over again, over the years in my own revolution, I, I've, I've begun to realize, and for me, again, I'm looking at Jesus as my, as my model, as my picture. Um, I can't square exclusion <laughs> with the person I know in Jesus. I mean, he was, I mean, the, the way I like to do it now is a lot of us like to put circles or boundaries around, our, around us. It could be around our family. It could be around our church. It could be around our political belief. It could be around whatever. We just like boundaries. And for me, faith, religion, Jesus, Christianity, all of that is about erasing those boundaries. It's all about removing those barriers um, so that they're uh, so that all are welcome. And we and we say that pretty glibly. Uh, how many churches have we gone to, or how many places have we gone to where it says? Their website says all are welcome. Well, all are welcome except, you know, right? Certain, if this big if you meet these criteria, if you meet these if you change in this way, um, you know, you will be accepted here. Um, or they'll say things like maybe a little looser. They say, well, you'll be accepted here, but you're not allowed in leadership. Yeah, here, you know, and I. I just don't think that kind of thinking has any place. It, it doesn't have any place in my understanding of the Christian faith anymore. I, I, I can't go there. Um, I appreciate your sharing that there was that process from earlier in your life where your beliefs, and, and, and again, recognizing time and place. I grew up in a time and place in small rural uh, Midwest where that was the more accepted general belief system. I mean, I, if I watch uh, old TV shows, say, from the 80s or 90s, 
and the way it treats homophobia as a joke or whatever, you know, of course, it's not hard to go back far enough and you get into a lot of racist things. This is all our evolution as a society and as a people, too. And I think we need to allow room for that. However, there's an awful lot of people I see who are not seeming to engage um, very quickly in the evolution that you described of yourself, where you came from a place that you were also, it sounds like, surrounded by, sure, racism and homophobia and, you know, as part of this, but in your thinking and process and learning and growing as, as a human. Yeah. You, you came to where we are both saying inclusion matters. I, I think it's really at the heart, especially when we talk about inclusion of those marginalized people in our societies that we, you know, it could be LGBTQ, it could be the, it could be the poor, it could be uh, of a race, a certain race, it could be exclusion of people who um, homeless. aren't um, homeless or aren't educated um, or who... <laughs> Here's a good one. Here's a funny, lighthearted one. In our church, um, so when I was pastor, we had a lot of us that went skiing. I mean, we skied all the time. It's all we did. And we had several people would tell us at church, we don't feel welcome here because we don't go ski. We, we don't ski. <laughs> and, and that's a really kind of a silly example, but that's, uh, that's, it's an example of um, we, we can exclude people for any number of reasons. It's kind of just, but we do have to allow people to to have their own evolution also. And so, uh, you know, my growing edge right now, (laughs) and I'm laughing here, but my growing edge right now is not to become judgmental of people who are judgmental, (laughs) (laughs) you know, not to become intolerant of people who are intolerant. Um, Right. uh, You know, because their story is their story also, and they are where they are. For a particular set of reasons, could be the way they were raised. It could be, I don't know, whatever. It could be, uh, right. So I just, I, I want, I want to be the kind of person, and we go, and we're back full circle to kind of stories. I want to be the kind of person that can listen to your story, um, even if I am in a totally different place than you are. I mentioned spiritual a spiritual teacher mentor in my life in recent years when i when i talked about fade fight fix mm-hmm. another thing that comes to mind from that person is um the idea that everyone is doing their work that we should assume that everyone is working on being the best person that they can be and that like you just said we're in different places perhaps we have different reasons for that but to give people that compassion and that space and to not judge where they are because they're not where you are. Uh, yeah, I, ju- I just wanted to mention that as part of the process, too. And it's very difficult. I-, I-, I find it. I've mentioned on this podcast before. This is an aspirational practice in my life to come onto this podcast and be the best listener, to have the most compassion. Anyone can come sit opposite me and tell me whatever they have going on in their life or their, what their story has been, and I'm not sitting here judging. I'm not picking fights. But when I go walk down the street, I might find it a little tough to not get aggravated at the person who does whatever, you know, that my ego now decides is rude, mm-hmm. right? Um, so far, oh. from imper- uh, far from perfect as well. Yeah, and I, and I just think we have to own that. Um, as much as I talk about being graceful toward each other, inclusive toward each other, I got my moments, you know, where I'm not that at all. And so we just have to recognize that that's part of being human as well. Um, 
You know, you reminded me of a story when you're talking about the teachings of Jesus, and you had mentioned Buddha. And so I have in my mind, to some extent, without any great deep study, I, I acknowledge, thought about the two of those as sort of parallel or something. The idea of the teachings, as opposed to the rules of a church, an organized church, the teachings, love thy neighbor, it's simple, it's basic, why can't we just have compassion and empathy and so on? And that my story, since we're trading stories here, I was on a plane a number of years ago and I was sitting next to two women and the woman in the middle seat clearly was in charge in some sense. They seemed to be heading to some sort of conference or gathering that was related to their faith. And she took the book from her partner's hand. Um, it had something to do with Jesus. Uh, I don't remember the title, being a carpenter or something of that nature. And she decided to strike up a conversation clearly with the intention of trying to convert, persuade, save me. And she asked me, would you read this book if I gave it to you? And I was honest with her and I said, no, I won't. She stuck it into my hand and said, take it anyway. I said, it's your friends. She was trying to read it. I'll get her another one. Don't worry about it. And she proceeded throughout the flight to continue trying to talk, trying to find an edge in. And I wasn't engaging in the conversation until the plane was on its way down to the ground to land. And I finally made mention of something to do with, in my mind, my thinking, a connection between Jesus and Buddha and teachings. And I didn't even get the sentence out of my mouth and she cut me off. They are not the same. That was it. She had tried for a whole flight to get me to talk. And when I finally did, she cut me off. She wouldn't let me give the book back. I felt bad for the other woman. And I never read the book. Like I said, I wouldn't. And I ended up taking it to a goodwill at some point. Boy, I, that sounds like a horribly uncomfortable flight. <laughs> Just like, oh my gosh. Um, I might have asked the flight attendant, may I have another, <laughs> I have another seat? <laughs> so, I, yeah, so I have a number of these experiences, right? Like I think like a lot of us do. And so it's, again, it's so refreshing to be able to talk with you. I know that our time is running out, even though I would love to talk for hours more, uh, and I'm sure that we could. I want to ask you, um, we've brought up the word compassion so many times, and I think that we can all feel, no matter what our perspective of life in the world is right now, that we need something. We need something that's more connecting. Mm -hmm. Compassion seems to me to be a key for that empathy. In your view... What is it that we can do to cultivate more of this compassion and a sense of empathy, better listening um, and sharing and openness, maybe as individuals, but also as communities and, and, and society? Well, two things come to mind. Um, the time I saw, so you know that the churches are sometimes at each other's throats, you know, individual denominations and so forth. Right. The times, though, when I have found the churches um, and individuals who are widely diverse in their in their viewpoints about anything get together is when um, there's a tragedy and they put their differences aside and they go and they do something for somebody else. They act compassionately. Mm -hmm. And so when we would go on mission trips with other churches, if we would sit down and talk about theology, 
we would we would clash. <laughs> but when we would talk about we got to go put the roof on that house, we're all together completely. So that's one. I think that's one very practical thing that we can do with each other is actually <laughs> quit holding on tightly to our theological beliefs and, and thinking that that's the only place we can connect. And let's just do human compassionate works together. And then the second thing is a story by Mother Teresa. Somebody asked her once what, why she thought the world was in such a mess. And she said, we, um, she said I think it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. And so that's been a thing I would remember. I've remembered for year, remembered it for years. Is we just need to remember that we actually belong to each other. And if you zoom out from this planet Earth and you just see this one little ball, it's it. That's all there is. There ain't nowhere else to go. That's a, that's a, a good analogy that we're in this together, and we're gonna we're gonna survive or fail. Um, or survive or destroy ourselves, you know, one way or the other. Um, and when you zoom out of the earth and you see that, yeah, we're all this together, that we belong to each other, maybe that will be, maybe that's something important for us just to keep in mind every day. You and I both have some, some background in marketing, and that just gave me this idea of sort of needing to do this big, broad, global campaign, you know, earth, we're in this together, <laughs> and try to cultivate this idea that, we're connected and, and you you can't there there is a ripple effect for everything that any of us do some people yeah. refer to that as karma um i don't know other words at the moment but the idea is that whatever we do it, it's going to ripple and create reactions throughout everyone else um you know and and it we're not headed in good places when we forget and we and we become disconnected emotionally spiritually yeah. and so on my son's in the military, and he always has a saying that we will build the kind of world that we want. And I think we will build the kind of world that we want. You know, do we want something good or do we want it, you know, you know clashing with each other? Um, yeah, I, I think we have that potential and power within us to both heal and to, and to destroy. And that sounds a little negative. I don't want to end on a real negative spot there, but we do have that power um, to heal the world and to bring together. Um, I'm from the 60s. Maybe that sounds a little bit too kumbaya-ish, but that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my background. <laughs> well, I, it, I think, you know, I am a bit naive in thinking that you described as well just moments ago, all these basic behaviors that, in my mind, don't require a, a faith structure, an organized religion that creates all the boundaries and the hard edges and the divisions and even conflict. There, I mean, there have been actual wars throughout history, right, based on religion. When really, if we come back to just remembering we're in it together, compassion, we belong to each other, I, why does it need to be harder than that? That's my naive question that's in my mind and always has been. I didn't need to be forced to go to church to end up being a good person. Right. Um, I had shared with you before, you know, when we were not recording, an experience I had when my oldest son was about to be born. And a religious woman that I worked with, uh, I worked at a large corporation. It had nothing to do with religion, but she happened to be a faithful person who asked me what church we were going to take our newborn son to. And I said, well, you know, we don't go to church. And her answer was, well, I guess serial killers have to come from somewhere. 
the assumption being, well, clearly then we're the ones who are in the wrong, we're heathens, we're, we're bad, in whatever way she imagines this. Um, obviously, that's a, a, a cringeworthy, sort of disgusting thing to say to anyone and, and a about-to-be new father and yeah. as a representative of her faith. To have such a, a horrible sort of comment. Yeah, that was pretty horrible. And again, I reassert that those of us who um, have been able to step back, you mentioned freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, there's a freedom that when the lenses I use are in in line more with Mother Teresa and just, just be good to each other. Let's belong to each other yeah. rather than use rules against each other. You know, and, you know, if it's naive, then I'm probably naive as well. If, if, if it's simplistic, I'm probably simplistic as well. I mean, I know the problems of the world are, 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 are profound. Um, but love doesn't, love doesn't do wrong to a neighbor, you know. Um, and so I, I stick with, if I have a certainty, if I have a certainty, it is that love, um, love uh, understood not as a sentiment but as a gutsy act of giving myself to another, if mm. we, I think love can solve the problems. Having having courage to it love takes takes courage. It takes courage to love. I mean, Jesus said, "Love your enemies." Is anything harder? Is any is there any harder statement than love your enemy, or forgive those who hurt you? Those are profoundly difficult things. But I think. Um, they are answers to some of our issues that we are facing nowadays. I agree. Mike, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. I would love to keep talking with you. Um, you know, given the experience you know, that I've shared from my youth and, and my perspective on organized religion, it seriously would have, I, I think, had a chance to go differently had you been the influence in my life at that time. I'm grateful for this conversation and any conversation that we have. Um, yeah, you've shared so honestly here and, well, and, and put up with my challenging questions, uh, ch- my questions that challenge faith. Yeah. <laughs> so thank well, you. I, again, I am grateful to be here and your kind, your kind words. Um, appreciate that. Um, um, so yeah, I, it's, uh, it's been good. Appreciate it. Okay, that was my conversation with Mike Oral. If what he shared here today resonated with you, you can email comments to Lisa Martin, one of our producers at lmartin at chafeecounty.org. Once again, I'm your host, Adam Williams. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to Hen Radio, where we recorded today's conversation in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. Lisa Martin, producer and community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment and to Becky Gray, Director of the Chafee Housing Authority. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Departments of Public Health and Housing and is supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening, and until next time, as we say here at We Are Chafee, be human, share stories.